0: President and CEO
1: at the Moosey Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference on what to do when the government comes knocking on your company's doors. Joining me in today's teleconference, I have my two esteemed, brilliant, experienced lawyers at the Moosey Law Firm. Attorney Aaron Singshine, who's been with the Moosey Law Firm for over 20 years. He's a managing attorney at the firm. A brilliant creative lawyer that I'm sure many of you have had the privilege and honor of speaking with or consulting uh, with over the past two decades. Joining both of us is another brilliant and experienced attorney, Chris Drynan, who's also been with the firm for, I don't know, maybe a decade or close to it, and ten has.
0: Years in, 10 years in October, Sheila. So
1: there you go congratulations chris thank
0: you so
1: so as you can see 10 years and before that he's had 10 or 15 or 20 years experience i think as an immigration lawyer he comes pretty close maybe between aaron and me as i was thinking about the call today i thought you know what between the three of us we're getting pretty close to over three quarters of a century so we have between 75 to 100 years of experience a century of experience 100 years in immigration law uh, just among the three of us. So clearly there's a wealth of knowledge and we hope to discuss, uh, go over briefly with you to just keep you uh, abreast of what are the latest changes that are occurring. So obviously, as we know in today's uh, you know uh, conference, we're gonna talk about what to do when the government agency knocks on your company's door. They will probably ask questions about the foreign national, the work site, and of course, we're going to touch a little bit about what's happening since middle of March of 2020 with the COVID-19 shutdowns impacting employers and employees across the world, not just across the United States. And so the best thing that the employer or a company can do is to ensure that all the ducks are in a row, your I's are dotted, your T's are crossed, your paperwork is in order, and that you are fully c- compliant before any of any person shows up either from the FDNS, which most of you know was created back in 2004, the Fraud Detection and National Security. They're part of the USCIS. Uh, or Immigration Customs Enforcement, which is the primary agency to go after violations and to do the deportation slash removals, as they're now called for the last decade plus, or the U.S. Department of Labor, DOL. So normally what we see, obviously, is Either an I-9 investigation, or a notice of inspection is delivered. It used to be delivered by certified mail and during COVID-19, ICE has agreed in the past several months and issued a number of extensions in order to provide employers additional time to produce certain documents. But most of those deadlines seem to be expiring or have expired. And also, of course, we additionally see that the Department of Labor will normally serve, their notices by mail, they tend not to show up in person. So now let's focus a little bit on how COVID-19, whether it has disrupted FDNS in any form or fashion. So Aaron, I invite you to jump in.
2: Sure, it is true that uh, COVID-19 has disrupted the FDNS site visits for the last several months. Um, However, these visits have resumed a few weeks ago and they're primarily initiated by email. Um, what we've noticed is that the officers may attempt to arrange to meet at the beneficiary's work location, but they won't insist on, on going to the beneficiary's work location if the beneficiary doesn't have access due to the pandemic. Instead, what they'll do is the FDNS will ask for photos of the worker's homework location Um, Or what they may ask for, they may agree to, is also accepting pictures from the traditional office location to verify that there, in fact, is a setup there. Just a warning, which is in regards to working from home locations, employers should have filed amendments if the employee's home work location was not within the same MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area or Commutable Distance, of the original location on the LCA and the H-1B. Uh, if the location is covered by the LCA, it is in the same MSA, it is in commutable distance, then the employer has to update their public access file, their PATH, with evidence of the notice of posting at the home location. Yeah, that's right. Put it on the refrigerator, so to speak. Uh, and the reason why they're doing that is because it's technical compliance. There's a binary rule that you require that notice of posting. You either got it or you don't. And therefore, posting on the refrigerator at least meets that technical requirement.
1: Yeah, it certainly does some make no sense. It's like nobody else comes into my house, especially with COVID-19. But like Aaron just said, it's a technical requirement. You're supposed to put it in the bulletin board on the refrigerator, wherever. So that it's wherever the employees supposedly the physical place of work location. So thank you, Aaron. So so Chris, can I ask you, so what are these agencies looking for information to get, get from this?
0: well it's it 's a bunch of different agencies that we're dealing with Sheila and, and it, sometimes it is it is a fishing expedition in all honesty sometimes they're acting on on a complaint or or a tip from someone um, and all these agencies basically are investigating different aspects of an employer's compliance with the immigration and the employment laws. Um, they also investigate uh, the compliance with the h one the rules for the h-1 and l-1 uh, visa classifications which are, of course a lot of people who are listening to this teleconference are going to be going to be acutely interested in um, as well as other things like i-9 compliance that's the form that every employer has every employee has to fill out um, when they when they begin working to confirm that they're allowed to work in the united states as well as sometimes wage and hour issues are, are the workers being paid what they're supposed to be being paid um, now, as, as I said, a lot of the people listening to this teleconference today are going to going to be people who employ H-1 or L-1 workers. And I think they're going to want to know what are, the, uh, what are the additional requirements that they really have to look out for if they get one of these site visits. And I think you're going to talk about that now, Sheila.
1: Yep. So, basically, as we know, the FDNS has many functions. So, if the company employs non-immigrant workers, as Chris just said, on, such as H-1 and L-1 employees, they do have these additional requirements to comply with the law or be subject to a specific types of compliance review and investigations. And the FDNS, as some of us are aware, is responsible for verifying that the employer, the H-1B or the L-1 employer, is complying with the non-immigrant petition, particularly H-1B petitions filed both with, we will see the Department of Labor with the LCA part of it, and with USCIS for the actual I-129, the H-1 petition. And there are a number of different types of assessments or reviews that the FDNS performs. So the three main types are, one is performance of fraud assessments, where the FDNS officers review and they engage in assessing the fraud indicators, including what they consider benefit fraud and compliance assessment, to determine the type and the volume of fraud in certain immigration benefits programs. Second, compliance, the compliance reviews. Systematic review of certain types of applications or petitions to ensure the integrity of the immigration benefit system. And third, targeted site visits. So if inquiries there, which are conducted, as many, many of you have seen over the past 5, 10, 15 years, these inquiries are conducted in cases where either the fraud fraud itself is suspected or they sometimes claim it's done completely randomly based on a variety of factors on the volume, etc., of the employer filing H-1 petitions. And of course, I think in the more recent, which is very recent, but in the past few years, is that of what they call random targeted site visits with a special focus on H-1B dependent employers or employers with third party that place employees at third party client sites, which is truly, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense if you look at it because they love it. They take the tax money from employers, but now they're looking at people and employers under the microscope. Um, I guess a big part of it is the Buy American, Hire American, all of the different things that we've been seeing over the past few years. So with that, I'm going to invite Aaron to explain a little bit on the types of immigration benefits that we most commonly see with targeted, which are targeted for the site visits.
2: Sure, thanks, Shua. You know, mainly we see them checking on H-1Bs, and this has been occurring for a few years now. But visits on L-1 non-immigrants, especially L-1A cases, is also occurring. Also, just to point out something that Shua was saying, just because they, if you have a larger company and you may have 100 H-1Bs or 25 L-1s that are going on or 200 or 300, you sometimes will find that they'll ask for a particular period in time or they'll ask for a list of 10 names or something along those lines. When they're targeting this, that doesn't necessarily mean they're looking for something in that period of time or those 10 people. Just to be clear, it's just that if they have to look at 100 or 200 or 300, that's a ton of work for them. And sometimes they slice it up just to get a picture of what's going on. Uh, So the first one I would say is H1s and L1s and uh, especially the L1As. Second, they're looking to check if the employee in the HRL category is doing the work as described in the approved petition. Usually, these generally occur after the approval of a petition and not pre-adjudication. So they're usually not a pre-adjudication requirement. However, recent developments... we've been seeing is that the FDNS has been conducting pre-adjudication site visits for H-1Bs, including after an RFE has been responded to. So it's possible to come both ways, but more likely it comes after the H-1B has been approved and the person's working there for a while.
1: Thank you, Aaron. So can I invite you to say, how are these different, how are these being carried out by the FDNS?
0: Well, Sheila, typically the FDNS officer or, or officers who are doing the investigation will, will go to the, the actual the employee's actual place of employment. So, typically, if we're talking about an H1B employee and, and we're talking about a consulting business, um, this normally means that the, the H1 employees are going to be interviewed off-site. In other words, not at your not at your company's headquarters, and frequently without the employer present. A lot of times, employers will not know this has occurred until it, long after it's done. Um, now, as, as we noted before, given the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, these days these typically are done by by email or phone for the safety of the officers and for the safety of the employees. Um, a lot of times, also fds officers will follow up with the employer um, if they're somewhere else, if they're in a different different location. Um, Usually by email. If they have any additional questions that, that arose after the inter- that arose after the interview or during the course of the interview with the employee. Um, now, normally the questions asked by the officer will gen- will revolve around the nature of the work. In other words, what they're doing, what the employee is doing. Uh, they'll verify the wages uh, that they're being paid to be make sure that they're being paid what they're supposed to be being paid. And they also might inquire about the interaction between the employee and the employer. In other words, they might want to confirm that the there actually is an employer-employee relationship here, which is it has been for many years a big deal with H one B's. And if you get if you're an employer and you get an e- an email subsequent to one of these interviews, you all, might also get an adi- a request for additional company information. And sometimes that will not really appear to be relevant to the specific qu- case that was being that was being verified. It it's sort of generic generic information.
1: So the next issue we wanted to touch upon is, from you, your perspective as an employer, what is the best way for the employer or the company to handle these visits, follow-up verification? And I will answer that. Before I do that, though, what Chris just mentioned about the employer-employee relationship, you would think that after the incredible victory of the IT Serv Alliance lawsuit, and I know there are a lot of IT Serv Alliance members probably on today's telephone conference. By the way, kudos and congratulations to IT Serv for filing the lawsuit and for the USCIS retracting two of their memos and now no longer issuing the RFCs that were so common for the past two or three years on lack of employer-employee relationship and the right to control and detailed itinerary requirements, etc., etc. So really good. So hopefully those will also, but sometimes, as they say, there's many a slit between the cup and the lip. And from the time that the FDNS officers are told that they know and follow up with some of it, they may not even be aware of it for several months lag time that occurs, particularly with less training and less, you know, interaction between the, uh, the, the different agencies, particularly since mid-March when most of the country either shows shut down or slowed down or there was, you know, work from home type of arrangements which is much harder in the federal government workspace because of high security concerns and issues. So what's the best way for the employer to handle these site visits follow-up verifications? Obviously for you as the employer, the first thing to understand is that the ASVVP or the Administrative Site Visit Verification Program that the FDNS carries out, it actually does not require participation because it is considered voluntary for you as the employer and the employee on whether or not to respond to FDNS officers' request for information. It's not like a federal subpoena. It's not mandatory under federal law. However, as we well know, if the, the the potential risk is that if the employer or the employee uh, chooses not to participate, then it could result in the USCIS issuing a, either a formal NOIR, notice of intention to revoke, notice of intent to revoke uh, the approved petition, or... In case of something that was done before the approval of the petition, either a, deni- a denial of the H-1B or a notice of intention, annoyed, a notice of intention to deny the H-1 petition. At that point, the employer could re- respond to the USCIS with the information about the employment of the, non, you know, of the H-1B worker at that stage of the NOID or or even after the denial with an appeal, which we know can take years and years and years. Or third, the, an employer or employee can also request the FDNS to reach out to the immigration attorney on record, whoever filed the H1 petition, or if you think, you know what, my company lawyer or my in-house people aren't able to do this, but I would like to have, uh, you know, another law from somebody else that you're more comfortable that does this kind of work that has a team or group of lawyers or a team that can do this work. Then that you can contact that lawyer uh, to seek assistance specifically in responding to the officer's request for information, and in general, because most of us know that the FDNS takes only a few provides you only a few days to respond. Um, so whether it's employers or employees and or your attorneys, it's generally recommended to request additional time to respond to such a request for verification of information or documents.
2: Oh, before you jump into the, to the next topic, I just wanted to say something real quickly because the ASVVP, the site visits is voluntary, but cooperating actually in the LCA, you do sign a, a, a page where you indicate that you will cooperate with the government. The issue is that there is no specific rules about how you're required to cooperate with the FDNS. So I do want to be be clear that not cooperating with the site visit saying, no, I don't want you to come in. You may get a notice of intent to revoke. They'd have to document what the issue is and you could respond to it. But altogether, refusing cooperation, um, that's something that you sign off on on the LCA so it could come back and create a problem. However, there are people that have refused the site visit, and what they'll do is they'll come in and they'll say, communicate by email, or as Sheila mentioned, let's set up a time for you to speak to your attorney, to our attorney, and so it gives you an Unbelievable amount of flexibility because there's nothing specific that requires or it, or dictates the method that you're required to, to require to cooperate. But it's really cooperating with that site visit program that's not required. That's all.
1: Thank you, Aaron, for that clarification. That makes perfect sense. Uh, what if the employer or employee either get an email or they get a phone call? Um, you know, is it uh, is it more straightforward to ask for more time? But what if the officer shows up in person? I know. Showing up in person during COVID nineteen is less likely, but what once things open up over the next few months?
2: So it's it's a great question. So the the best uh, way to deal with this type of situation is, of course, to be prepared, both for the employer and the employees. Uh, the employer should make sure the first point of contact, and this is, I think, this is very clearly going to be a post-COVID type of thing, because if they showed up now, I think it would be pretty pretty uh, without the email notification in advance. But the first point of contact at the company's headquarters or at the work location should be made to understand who the FDNS is or who these investigators are, and the company should have some type of plan in place for when the officer arrives. Companies may consider having a designated point of contact to meet with the officer, such as an HR man manager or in-house counsel. Uh, or someone else who can speak on behalf of the company. Again, participation in the site visits is completely voluntary, but just because it's voluntary doesn't mean it's the right thing to send them packing, so keep that in mind. Uh, another thing that uh, the employers can, should do is they should make sure the employees are also aware that the site's visits are possible and they should have a protocol in place. These protocols can include contacting the employer before answering the officer's question or making sure the employee understands what the officers are generally trying to verify, things such as work location, duties, salaries, uh, so on and so forth, so that when the uh, employee engages with the officer, they'll understand what's being looked for and they'll be able to answer as earnestly as they can on the correct topics. I think all of those things are a good way to approach it if you receive the email or the phone call or the officer just shows up.
1: Yeah, as as Aaron said, it's even better, like you said, to have the system and have employees expect them so that there's no shock or fear factor, like, why is this happening to me? So if everyone's prepared within the organization, including the employees, obviously it'll be much more helpful when and if there is a knock on the door physically or by email or by phone call. Okay, with respect to timelines, Chris, what are the timelines for responding to FDNS requests for either documentation or information or both?
0: Well, we've seen a lot of these through the year, Sheila, and there, there, we we'll see a lot of different deadlines um, being requested by various FDNS officers. I mean, t- they tend to be on the short end of the short end of the timeline, um, but it, it does vary a lot, and it seems to be driven almost entirely by internal policies. Um, in, in other words, FDNS policies on 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 just how long they should they should wait for a response. And sometimes the officers won't even provide a deadline. They'll just keep following up until, they, until you respond to them. Um, now, it's important not just to, if, if you get a request from an FDNS officer, not to just disappear and, and completely blow it off, because they're, they're going to regard that as a, essentially as a failure to cooperate, and that could very well have negative consequences, like the issuance, the issuance of a notice of intent to revoke or, or a denial uh, if this is a pre-adjudication site visit. So keep in, keep in communication with the officer. If, it takes you, if it's taking you some time to get the, the documents or the answers that they're looking for, tell them that and ask them for additional time. At least, I mean, drop them a line occasionally to tell them that you haven't forgotten about this, you're not ignoring them. And that's, that's going to keep the officer uh, happier and, and more likely uh, not to, to issue a negative memorandum in, 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 in regard to what they're investigating here. Now, once you've, once you've responded, I guess the next question is what should you expect once you've responded? And I'm going to turn that over to you, Sheila
1: okay thank you very much so how do we know if everything's been resolved as chris just said so in the case of a pre-adjudication site visit before there's a decision on the case this will be fairly clear based on the decision that is issued by the usps so they come in they knock the fdns gets clarification your petition gets approved that means they were satisfied you get an rfc that means they have some questions you get Uh, Denial, maybe that means that the FDNS officer did not say kind things or had some concerns about the information that was provided or there was a mismatch between what the employer and employee said, etc. But with respect to post adjudication site visits, it's not that clear because the FDNS officer, if the officer is satisfied, once they have received all the answers to their questions, there is really no way to know if it was successful for the employer and the employee unless the employer receives a notice of intention to revoke a NOIR in the case, then you know it didn't go well, but this could sometimes be months, sometimes even longer, maybe a year. Uh, So it's really a really long waiting game. The other thing to keep in mind also is that if uh, that although we have separate agencies as we just talked about with FDNS, with ICE, with Department of Labor, they do tend to partner with each other to share information. They're not necessarily official memorandum of understandings or MOUs. Sometimes there are MOUs between the different parties um, as well, specifically. But for example, we've seen that the USCIS has formed a partnership with ICE in which the FDNS pursues the administrative inquiries into most application and petition fraud issues, while the ICE will conduct criminal investigations into what they think are major fraud conspiracies by employers. If a company is consistently being subject to site visits, it may be that the employer or the company is under investigation and it is more than a random site visit check. So obviously it's important for you as employers to ensure that you understand what's going on, that you seek assistance from experienced and qualified lawyers or a law firm to review uh, you know, the site visit history, and to get assistance in terms of responding to future inquiries from the concerned federal agency. So what other types of investigations are pretty common or becoming more and more common that employers, either if they haven't already experienced it, need to be aware of? Aaron, I'll invite you to answer this.
2: Sure. So the Department of Labor wage and hour also plays a very large role with respect to H-1B compliance, because these cases require an LCA, a labor condition application, which means that they have additional compliance requirement, requirements regarding maintaining public access files, payment of the wages to H-1B workers, and the non-displacement of U.S. workers. Um, so the, I would say the Department of Labor is a very big one.
1: Okay. Thank you. Also, I think we're all pretty familiar with public access files and required wage per Department of Labor, the H1VLCA, Department of the Green Card case as well. But what exactly does, I know there's reference in many places to that the, there should be non displacement of U.S. workers, but what does that really mean from the, for the employer?
0: Well, for the, as far as the employer is concerned, non displacement essentially means you should not be laying off your U.S. workers. Um, and replacing them with lower-paid H-1B workers. Um, there have been some, some some famous instances where this occurred. The most famous one, I think, involved involved the Disney Corporation, um, where a lot of a lot of Disney staff um, were laid off and replaced with H-1B workers. And the Disney uh, the Disney workers were required to train uh, the H-1B workers who were replacing them as a condition to get their severance pay. Um, that's that's displacement and and you know if you're if you're an employer you're making some attestations that, that that's not going to occur.
1: Okay. So from the so to answer the question how does the Department of Labor, you know, investigate an H1B employer's compliance? So generally as we know this is triggered when an employee or a former employee files a complaint, makes a h and hour complaint with the Department of Labor and then the Department of Labor is obligated to investigate the complaint. Or, second, it can be when the Department of Labor shows up in an employer's location requesting the public access files, which by regulation is required to be produced within three days of the initial request. And similar to the FDNS visits, the employers should need to have a protocol for receiving uh, the Department of Labor agent. So, as we said earlier, you know, have one, have a designated person Personnel as the first point of contact to reach out to within the with the company. Second, you understand what is required and not required to provide. Again, as an employer, you're eligible or entitled to get your three days to produce the public access files, so you don't have to provide something on that very day when that person walks in. Uh, again, this would have been pre-COVID or post-COVID. And three, the employer again is not required to produce internal material such as relating to your own internal self-audit of your files or internal attorney-client-privileged communication or material, um, generally what we see is that the department should leave the employer with a specific list of items, including a time frame to provide the information, including the public access files. You know, oh, go back to everything that of all the employees you hired in the past, you know, 12 months or what have you. What about, you know, I know the question often is, but three days is not a lot of time because sometimes I'm traveling, I'm abroad, I'm busy, I'm an employer doing a million other things. I don't really have the money to hire a full-time HR person because my company is not, not that large or that small. So how should an employer handle that portion of it, Aaron?
2: Well, this is going to depend on how large of a request is being made by the Department of Labor. Uh, if a company's files have been internally audited on a regular basis and are being appropriately maintained, this will greatly help the company comply with the Department of Labor's request. Um, but. Um, Also, if the company may go back to the Department of Labor and seek an extension on the three-day timeline. So, even though it's regulatory, you can still go back to them and say, hey, give us some time to put everything together so we can put it in a format that makes it easier for you guys to go through it and to see it and that that we're able to gather it up correctly is also something that you can request. Uh, especially if the if the department of labor sometimes they'll send you an email that says we need it in 3 days and then after the email they'll send you they'll call you up on the day and say we're coming by today and many times those emails are unnoticed or people think they're spam or they don't realize that they're significant so even that they try to avoid Showing up and just say give it to me in three days. They try to communicate by email, so especially in that type of situation, you might be able to get additional time. uh, And also, if it's large, the third way is companies should consider involving their attorneys before making the public access files, and additionally requesting document and additionally requested documents available. So sometimes in the public access files, if you look at them, you say, I did a great job. I filed this fantastic format. I know I've got everything. Let me hand it over to the government. And what you may have is systemic errors that are in your public access files, and you don't even know about it. And so being able to get a little bit of additional time to have an attorney to go through some of the public access files to see if these systemic errors exist, if these problems are there, and to give a chance to be able to correct them lawfully. I'm not saying, you know, I'm saying lawfully, correctly, properly do it, disclose what you're doing, but be able to give everything in a more pristine way is also something that's very helpful. And that, again, is something you could most likely only do if you ask for the additional time.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Uh, Chris, so what happens once the Department of Labor reviews the requested documentation and obtains it? What happens next?
0: Well, DOL, DOL is going to look at everything you provide to them, um, and depending on what they find in that documentation, um, they, can, they can assess fines if there are violations. Um, they can award back wages if they find that some H-1B employees have been, have been underpaid, which, which does happen fairly frequently. Um, it's not unusual, particularly if you have a larger company. You'll, when you, when the DOL looks at these documents, or even when we deal with these, when we do an audit beforehand, we might find one or two workers who have just inadvertently been paid some some amount less than they should have been. Um, and so that's not uncommon. And in that case, DOL will will order you to 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 make the employee whole by paying them paying them what they're owed. Now, in the worst case, if we're talking about systemic violations. Um, you can actually have a situation where the employer is is forbidden from using the h one b program anymore, and that's called a debarment. Um, that's That's a very severe penalty, of course, because if you're if you're an h one b consulting company, you depend on being able to to get your h one bs approved. So being barred from the program would be disastrous. Um, now if you get a if you get a finding from the Department of Labor that you don't agree with, you have the right to appeal that. And a lot of times you can negotiate with the with the attorneys for the DOL, um, to, to reduce the penalties or reduce the reduce the reduce the fines or even sometimes reduce the back wages if you disagree with that. Um, so you can sometimes significantly reduce the monetary the, the monetary exposure that you're looking at. Um, so that's another good reason why you should really get an attorney involved with this early in the process.
1: Thank you, Chris. Agreed, 100. You know, each of you as employers is to be prepared. You know that. Just to highlight the three main areas, preparation is obviously try to self-audit your own files. You can do it internally. You can do it with an outside law firm. Somebody to double-check, do even a sampling, sampling audit. I know Moosey Law Firm does that routinely, either a sampling of a few cases, sample every case depending on the size of the company, it may make sense. Second, have standard operating procedures or SOPs in place for these areas of compliance to ensure that your staff internally is trained on who is going to be responsible for managing the particular area of the company's business, who is going to be there from the beginning to the end to explain or provide information, documents, who is the point of contact with the outside law firm or lawyers, etc. And obviously, as I said, threes, when, when and if needed, you should bring, you know, take the assistance or bring in qualified attorneys or law firms. Uh, Uh, earlier rather than later uh, to minimize the amount of risk and the exposure there. Chris just pointed out, if you can save a bunch of money either in back wages and fines, you can not get the debarment or start it after a certain period of time, etc. anything you can get, it's so much easier for somebody else outside to negotiate on your behalf and you should absolutely take advantage of it. Now, I, I know that Uh, We always try to have these seminars and these conferences between 30 and 45 minutes. I see that we are just past the 35-minute mark. And so I think it's been a great opportunity to share some information with you. I do hope that each of you is staying well and staying safe as you're dealing with COVID-19 and its impact on you, your families, your business. Maybe some of you are dealing with a lot of reduced work or, you know, issues that have come up because of the economy. But hopefully we can all get through this together. And we at the Murthy Law Law Firm certainly look forward to continuing to take good care of you, to educate you, empower you, and enlighten you through our amazing team, as you just saw with Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, Chris Drynan, And on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, Chris Drynan, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Moose Law Firm team. We thank you for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to help you and your business. And together, we hope that all of us will come out stronger and better when all of this is behind us with COVID-19. Stay safe, stay healthy, and have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. Thank you very much.
0: This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Moose Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.